Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, and I'm Craig Shapiro. So the U.S. Open finished up. There was some unbelievable tennis played throughout. 95-degree weather, retirements due to injury. An umpire got out of the chair to coach Nick Kyrgios. Do you remember that? But the controversy that echoed through Arthur Ashe Stadium and throughout the world was the fiasco at the women's final. It's still echoing and we're gonna get to it. I couldn't think of anyone better to talk about this with than my friend Ashley Harkle wrote. She was top 40 in the world. She had the same agent as Serena and she knows about the stresses and challenges facing not only female players on the tour, but high profile players. We're coming to you from Agora Hills. We're sitting on a phenomenal veranda with Ashley Harkle Road. How are you feeling? Good, feeling excited. I should tell everyone that we became, we all became fast friends a few years ago via the Malibu Racquet Club. Ashley came on the scene, you know, in 1997, highly touted junior. Her agent, when she first started, was Jill Smoller who infamously is, is Serena Williams' agent, longtime agent. Ashley, you came on the scene and she was calling you the American Sharapova. The American Kornikova. The American Kornikova. Yeah. Sorry, not Sharapova. That's right. You were the American Kornikova. That's what she Sharapova was saying. Sharapova was coming up right beside me. Ashley got to uh, world number 39 and she married my buddy Chucky Adams. My former coach of three years. Well, we're going to get to that. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, keep things moving and hit a wide variety of issues and stories, we've been implementing a five-segment format that we call the best of five. I'm gonna fight the urges and put off the Serena discussion to later, but Ashley, code violations happen to all players. What's your worst code violation story? Have you lost a point, a game? Have you been defaulted? I have actually been defaulted from a match before when I was 16 years old, I was playing a $25,000 challenger on the ITF circuit in Mississippi. It was the semifinals, I think, and it was 6-5 in the third me. It was my match point. I slid up for a short ball, and I missed a, a drop shot that would have probably won me the match because she was way off the court. And I just turned around and slung my racket out of anger, and that thing just flung right into the lines umpire, it hit him right in the leg, and, he, and it, it cracked the skin. I mean, he started bleeding. And I guess if blood is drawn on the court by something like that, it's like an automatic default. And I was just like, oh my God, what happened? And so, you know what, I learned my lesson. It happened very early on in my career, but you know, it was a bummer. That's a bummer. <laughs> yeah, it was a bummer, I was crying. I guess we're already in our first set and we're talking about you, Ashley Harkle Road, and your career. I don't know a lot about your junior career. Oh, I peaked in the juniors definitely peaked in the juniors. <laughs> um, I was number one in the nation um, in the 18 and unders when I was almost 15 years old. That's when I met Jill Smoller. And um, how did you meet her? I met her when I won the 18s nationals when I was 14. She and had she a deal waiting for me. She was like a free agent at that time. She, she was with um, William Morris. Oh, she was from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? Yeah. 
And you signed with her, your father? Your yeah, pa- she had. She got me a really nice Nike contract, Babylon contract, and uh, it was, um, you know, the juniors were over. There, no more fun and games, and it was serious. It was a job. Suddenly, it all happened within it seemed like a year. But Jill was Jill was a pusher. She pushed. She pushed hard. She knew. She knows how to make money. She knows how to make money off the court. She created a narrative for you. You were, they called you Pebbles. You were from Flintstone, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Is, that all, is that all true? Yeah, well, that's true. But no one called you Pebbles. That was her. No, everybody called me Pebbles on the tour. You made a big splash when you turned pro. Because mm-hmm. of Jill. Because of Jill and because I then moved on to number two in the world. I was 16 years old when that happened. But so how old were you when you actually turned pro? 14. I was about to be 15. How old till you cracked the top 100? Mm, I cracked it when I was 18. Not soon enough. I felt like for all the expectation, it wasn't even soon enough. Did you have significant results 16, 17? Did you make it? Did you have any like interesting wins? Mm, I had won a couple 25s, $25,000 challengers. You know, playing all these girls like Kuznetsova, Suwe Saw. You beat Kuznetsova. I beat her in the juniors, yeah, in the junior French Open. You won junior French Open? Finaled. I lost to Wajaja. Wajaja. Wajaja was a cute little Indonesian girl, and she actually became number the number one junior at the time. And we liked each other because we were, like, very girly in a way. We wanted to have boyfriends, and we wanted to be some sort of a regular girl, not just a tennis player. So, you know, how would you describe your pro career? Um, Short-lived, but, you know... What do you mean? Once the juniors were over and I uh, started to, you know, I had to play because it was my job. Um, My dad was starting to travel with me all the time. And before, I would travel with the USTA and the juniors. So everything changed, and it wasn't as fun anymore. Really, until I met Chucky, it wasn't so fun for me anymore, you know? I mean... Listen, you're traveling around the world with two coaches, a bunch of your girlfriends, a bunch of boys you like. You're having a great time. And then suddenly it's like, okay, you'll never see these girls again. These girls are going off to college. You're going on the pro tour. These boys that you liked, you're never going to see them again. You'll see them like four times a year. And that's that. And it's like, shit. I'm like 16, 17 years old and like all the fun is gone. Another part of the story is is that I think Jill through Kevin O'Connor, you guys ended up at Saddlebrook. I did, yeah. I got a scholarship there in ninth grade. Saddlebrook Resort, Wesley Chapel, Florida. They've had a high-level professional player program there for a long time. Uh, Jennifer Capriati, Martina Hingis, James Blake, Marty Fish. Yelena Dockich. A lot of good... uh, you know, they have a well-known fitness trainer there, Pat Echeverry. Players would come in. I, I actually shot Martina Hingis there. I shot Marcelo Rios there yep, when he yep. was one in the he world. used to come in. Pete Sampras used to come in. So you came up at Saddlebrook. Yeah, which was cool because Capriotti, I, I had a poster of her on my childhood bedroom. And would, so. you, and would you practice with Jennifer? Occasionally, occasionally. But she pretty much just practiced with Jimmy Brown who eventually became my coach, along, along with the USTA coach that they assigned me, Martin Van Dahlen. So, I mean, what year was it you got to 39? That was, God, I want to say that was in 2003. And that you were playing well. I was playing well. Um, 
you know, I came straight out of the juniors. No one knew my game. I hit at the right time because there were bonus points, for instance. So I had a big win over Bovina. I had a big win over Megan Shaughnessy. Um, Honchakova, I was 17 years old. So that skyrocketed me from about 112 to 45 or something. And then after the Family Circle Cup, when I had all these big wins, I then went on to like Strasbourg, which was, I want to say a $250,000 WTA tournament and made it to the semis. Strasbourg. So I got Strasbourg, yeah. which is the warm-up tournament before the French Open. And I had a lot of big wins there. So I got a lot of bonus points. Well, who'd you bonus be, points who'd you were be? Taken, taken away a few years later. Who'd you beat in Strasbourg? Mm, you'll have to ask my dad that. I cannot remember. He remembers everything. I, it's like, You have to I know remember who crazy. you beat in Strasbourg. I, I don't. Do you know this tournament, Strasbourg? Yeah, of course. I'm so grateful that you know that tournament because no one else would know that tournament. I mean, that's just the warm up. You semi'd Strasbourg. Yeah. And you don't think I would not know that tournament? Mm -mm. That's insulting. We'll have to look it up, Scotty. We have yeah. to learn out who she beat. Could have been Bartoli. Could have been, I don't know. I beat Bartoli a couple times. You did? Mm-hmm. I mean, when Bartoli won Wimbledon, did you? Did well, I made it to the finals of Auckland, which is a warm-up tournament before the Australian Open. That's where I beat Bartoli in a grinder match. Lost to Dan Ledoux in the finals. Elena Dan Ledoux. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sliced and diced me, you know. So I had, I had issues with those girls, like Roberta Vinci. She would dice me up. You had problems with some of the some yeah. of the players that some of the girls kinda... that had a lot of finesse. So when did you meet Chucky? <laughs> okay, I met him in Strasbourg. <laughs> That's so funny. You gotta ask my dad who I beat in that tournament. Um, I met Chucky in Strasbourg in. Chucky, Chuck is Ashley's husband, former world number thirty. His name's Chuck Adams, uh, and you guys you guys met in Strasbourg. Mm -hmm. Why? How? He was coaching um, uh, American sort of up-and-coming player Marissa Irvin at the time, and I had played her a few times actually. So uh, and did you, did you we were very competitive with one another, Marissa and I. But did you feel like a spark when you met Chucky? No, Chucky had more like baby fat then, and I think he was partying a bit more because he was only like 34, 35 years old. And he had a little bit of a beer belly, and he looked a bit scruffy. So I was not, at the time, even looking at someone like that. He had, like, real chest hair. He was like a man, you know? And I was 17, 18 years old, and he was, well, I want to say he was probably 30, 32. So, so then what happened? Anyway, I didn't see him for a while. You know, he wasn't on my radar for a few years. And I ended up um, getting super involved with um, Alex Bogomolov, who was a guy that I had known for since I was a baby, okay? Since I was a baby. I come from a very religious background, by the way. My grandfather is a preacher in the Church of Christ, and you are really not supposed to be living with someone. That is an abomination. And if if you're going to live with this person, then you better marry him and work out your problems <laughs> while, while you get married. And that's what I did. And we moved back to Georgia for a and little bit. And Bogomolov had a good career. After me. Yeah, he did. Yeah, we were like each other's blankies. But so then you, you started working with Chuck and you guys fell in love. Oh, there's like a huge middle ground there that you just No, no, what happened in the middle then? What happened in the middle was, yeah, I was married to Bogomolov and then basically um, met Chucky 
during team tennis while Bogomolov and I were at times staying together and at times not staying together. We were fighting a bit. And, and at that point in my life, I knew that Bogey needed to move on from me and I needed to move on from him. We needed to grow up. And if I really wanted to take this tennis seriously, this game that I'm so good at, it's, it's time. It's time to move on. I started treating tennis as a job. Not everybody loves this sport, you know? You don't love it all the time. Sometimes it's a job. So when I started looking at it as a job, I started realizing that I could be a successful woman on my own. And quite frankly, I thought Bogomolov should be without me too. And when I did that, I told Chucky, okay, I'm not doing this for you, Chucky. And I'm not gonna stay with Bogey or not stay with Bogey because of Bogey. I'm gonna figure out what Ashley wants. And you, but you guys were good and you played good, you were playing good tennis. Chucky was kind of sorting out your career a little bit. Chucky could be a financial advisor and the way he started making me look at my finances, he kind of, I guess, instilled some motivation or made me feel somewhat brave um, about, you know, moving on with my life really on my own. But the other part of that story too is you'd done Playboy and you were like, you were kind of like getting some appearance fees on the, for, to, to play. Okay, well doing Playboy was a decision that I made because number one, <clears throat> I have never been a modest person. So for me, it was really not a big deal. Um, definitely the money had something to do with it because I was injured at the time. And shoot, for what I made doing Playboy. What'd you make? I made $250,000. But the money that I made after Playboy beat probably because of Playboy. You can chalk it up to it was a half a million dollar deal for a journey woman like me. But I'm a cute journey woman now. <laughs> and so, so you made a yeah. million dollars on tour. Mm -hmm. And then you made another mill off the court. Probably, yeah. And probably more, really, when you think about it. Well, Clothing I know deal. what I ended up with, so it was worth it. But, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's a living uh, being a professional tennis player, but you got to be good at it, you know? So when did you go from, uh, you know, you were your, your career, you were with Chucky, and then you were done? <laughs> was I? Is that how people see me? No, I don't know. Was it? I don't know. I feel like people maybe do see me like that. Um, yeah, I was with Chucky. It was... Uh, Almost three years of him and I having some success, having a lot of ups and downs on the tour. And then finally he was just like, yo, do you just want to be done with this? Let's, let's try and have a baby and then see if you want to come back. Maybe that'll re-inspire you. And I was like, well, what am I going to do with my life? And then he was like, why don't you take your, this is where he came in financially for me. He had me start investing in real estate. And so... I ended up buying an apartment building over in near Venice, California with the money that, some of the money that I had made. And, um, and that, that kind of gave me some relief, I guess, and some security that like, hey, I own a piece of property in you know, Santa Monica, California, and these people have to pay me rent and I can always fall back on this apartment building if I have nothing else, you know? And so, yeah, he just basically, um, he's the smartest man I ever met. And 
I'm just in awe of him really to this day. He's the best dad, the most patient dad in the world, way more patient than me. And um, yeah, after like three and a half years, we'd had some success. We had amazing success um, playing Fed Cup together. And, and I was actually invited to play the Olympics. And that's when I found out I was pregnant and I didn't want to go. And I gave my spot to Jill Krabis, who was a friend of mine. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just was kind of like done with it, you know? All right, moving on to our off the court report. I feel like you've been retired five years. Just about, yeah. You still hit the cover off the ball, but you you are done. Two kids. I feel like I hit the ball better now than I did back in the day. Um, I don't know if it's because my body's matured and I'm I'm 33 years old and I am a, still a strong girl. I like to work out. And now when I play tennis, it's almost like it's a br you know like a breath of fresh air for me like a break from the kids you play and I'm kind of doing my thing you play and it's on your terms right you are a mommy in Malibu yep but you guys are sort of like celebrity athlete couple <laughs> is that how people see us well I don't know I mean you get what I'm saying the point is is that you know you, you teach a lesson here and there you play uh, a hit and giggle you know you guys get some different celebrity tennis here and there, yeah. Um, we get to hang out with some cool people like Christy Everett. So you just went to, you were just this past U.S. Open. What did you tell us what you did? Um, well, McEnroe, because we're good friends with McEnroe. So first of all, you guys have lived in Malibu, and you live near Mac. And you can explain how you guys all know each other, maybe? Chucky can explain that better. They've been uh, childhood friends. Chucky's known McEnroe since he was 14, 15 years old. So I've played some mixed doubles with McEnroe in the past, and him and I have had some fun together, you know? He's cool. I don't treat him like uh, he's John McEnroe. I treat him like he is a regular person because I just feel that vibe that he likes being treated as such, and I kind of like being treated as such. So, so McEnroe invited you guys to the Hamptons to play uh, John's event. What was that like? Charity event. You called it a hit and giggle. It kind of was, although the sponsors for McEnroe's charity event paid a lot of money to play with the pros, which Christy Everett, Andrea Yeager, rem I remember She's like her a priest. from a, when I was a child, my dad would talk about her. She was good though. She was really good. Yeah, I think she might have got to like top five in the world. Two in the world. Yeah, yeah. But she, how, could she even hit the ball anymore? Yes, she could. She was really good. Really? Mm -hmm. And she's like a nun, I think. Not anymore. I think that was a stage in her life. I don't know. I'd have to investigate, Google it. But Anyway, um, so that was a fun event. Yes, it was fun. You know, I saw Lindsay Davenport, who I played Fed Cup with, and she had Jagger at the time. So she was one of my, she was kind of one of my inspirations for um, becoming a mom. I thought that I could do it. By the way, if you go on the Instagram, you can see that Ashley's daughter, Sissy, is lefty mm -hmm. and it strokes the ball very similar to to her mother. I guess she's pretty good actually. She's pretty good. I think yesterday we had a breakthrough. My daughter doesn't really like to exert herself too much. She, you know, she sometimes just comes out there with an attitude and doesn't like to move her feet. And I can't stand it when she doesn't like to move her feet, okay? <laughs> so I feel like we had a breakthrough yesterday. She finally listened to me and today she wanted to play. So, so in 10 years, I want the player guest badge. 
I want the player I guest badge. I want Sissy to play one or two at Stanford, get a great education, meet a great guy, get married around 25, have babies around 28, and then I can be a grandmother and we'll have such a good time. We're turning her pro. <laughs> we have got to turn her pro. Her, her and Charlie, at least one. Well, I don't know about Charlie because Charlie's actually an all-around athlete and I say stay that way for a while and, and make your choice later around 13, 14 years old. I don't, we don't know what you're best at yet. You're pretty darn good at basketball. You're pretty darn good at soccer, pretty meanwhile, good at tennis. Meanwhile, Charlie is like unbelievable athlete. He's playing incredible basketball, right? Yeah, he's pretty good. He saw the Borg McEnroe movie and then started playing tennis four hours a day. Yeah. Okay, this is what we call our on-the-court report. We're going to get to Serena more in-depth in our fifth set, but I want to hear your thoughts on the state of the sport and what you think about pro tennis right now. The only time I think about it is when I think about my own career, and I think about the girls that I had to play against, which was a younger Serena Williams, a younger Venus Williams, Jennifer Capriotti, Kim Clijsters was super powerful. She'd just roll people left and right until, like, the semifinals. Um, you know, and then there's a whole bunch of other girls like R Roberta Vinci. I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm not seeing a lot of variety. I'm seeing the Williams sisters still very good, but not as fit. I watched Venus play Kuznetsova the first round of the U.S. Open I, there. I was live. And they're both not very fit. Uh, you know, I'm just, I'm seeing sort of just baseline tennis, just rip. So, I, of course, I watched the finals, and I saw Osaka, uh, you know, beat Serena. And I'm impressed with Osaka, but, you know, she doesn't really have uh, a net game. And if she actually ran into someone like a Dana Ledoux or a Vinci, I think it would cause her problems because they would pull her in and then they would make her feel uncomfortable at the net and they would pass her or, you know. So, and that's kind of what I notice. And what I'm noticing right now in women's tennis is there's not a lot of variety. Moving on to our fourth set, we call this the 10 ball scramble. What does that mean? We're just not gonna talk about it for a half hour. We're gonna just go quick. Okay. Cool? Got it. Okay. Favorite tournament? Family Circle Cup. Where's that? Mm, South Carolina. Hilton Head. Yeah. Isn't that the green clay? Yes. Why is that your favorite tournament? I grew up on green clay. I'm sort of a Georgia, Florida girl. I'm Florida, Georgia line. Favorite court? Um, a slow hard court. Specifically, what favorite, what's your favorite court? I like court Australia. I always played well in Australia. It's a slower hard court. I think that's hard true. No. Favorite city? Uh, favorite city, New York City. Really? Yes. Come on. I love New York. That's like my dream to have a place there. Uh, country music. My favorite. My uh, my past. Why? Stories of my past. Because I live down an old dirt road. That's why. <laughs> Is that right? Uh huh. Um, Playboy magazine. Um, profitable. Malibu. Um. Beautiful, yet cold. <laughs> Favorite player? Uh, Kim Clijsters. Saddlebrook Academy. Lots of memories. Lots of high school memories, actually. 
So grew up going to high school there. Um, you know, that's my high school days. Do you have any relationship with Saddlebrook anymore? Um, no, but I'm sure if I made a couple of phone calls, I, I would. College tennis. Um, never played it, uh, but I want my daughter to play college tennis. I want her to have those college experiences. It wasn't for me. I, I can only focus on one thing. I, I can't multitask well. Do you have any interesting opinion of it, though? Do you think it's a good thing? Do you think good players come out of there? Do you think it's something that you wish you might have wanted to do? Do you do you have any? I feel like if I would have played college tennis, I uh, I don't know. I'm not I'm not sure. I I don't think I would have had the same success. No, I never saw that for me. I've never heard of someone kind of coming out of college and being one of the best in the world. I I don't think if you if you're really serious about being a professional tennis player, um, then just you should go ahead and try. It doesn't seem to be the the the, the best path on the women's side, at least for sure. Even really both sides, even right, still. right. I mean, who who's really had right? I mean, John Isner did he go to college? He did, yeah. Yeah, it's probably better a boy thing. Girl thing, you got to just go ahead and knock that tour out. And if you don't, you got to know if you like it. Do it while you're young. And if you don't, try and try and make as much money as you can and get out. Then go to college. I don't know. Moving on, this is our fifth set, our fifth and final set. Usually it's king of the court or queen of the court where our guests talk about what they would do if they were the king or the queen. But right now there's only one queen that we're gonna talk about, and that is the great Serena Williams. First of all, do you know her? Um, of course I know her and I've spoken to her in the locker room and on tour and um, and we did share the same agent for for five years. So I know a lot about her. What's an interesting thing you could tell me about her? What everybody knows is that she's a dadgum fierce competitor. That's what she is. And she's out to win. And um, and that's her main focus. You know, she's not really trying to make friends. But you never had a nice conversation with her? Like, hey, what are you doing? Let's get a sandwich. Um, when I was around tour, the family was always around, you know, the sister. And I, I'm, I don't know if it's like that anymore. Maybe it is, perhaps. But the mom and the sisters and the dad. And, and so they kind of were their own pack. Which was, by the way, very hard for a young American girl coming up and not really feeling um, like I'm being embraced by my other fellow countrywomen. Back then, it was much more competitive between the U.S. girls. Now it seems they're all friends, and I, and I love that. I love seeing that, and I love seeing, like, female power and the girls stick beside the girls. Well, and Sloan and Madison Keys are friends. They're friends, and, you know, Sloan's a great girl. But yeah, back then, you know, it was the Williams sisters, and they had their own sort of family pack. And then, you know, Davenport was always cool, but she was in and out. She didn't hang out much at all. What I was going to say was I watched, you know, an all-white Australian Open center court crowd applaud voraciously against Venus Williams when she must have been 18 years old. And I can only, and it, 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 it sat with me for my whole life. The kind of overt and not overt racism that they experienced mm -hmm. week in and week out on the tour had to 
affect them in a way that would insulate and isolate. They were intimidating and they're the best and, and, and you gotta do what you gotta do to be the best. What does it feel like to play her? Um, it feels like David and Goliath a little bit. Like, what am I doing out here? I'm never gonna be able to beat her. Why? I, I've had, I've been fortunate to hit with great players. Mm -hmm. And the ball's so heavy. The, the, the power. Her ball's the, heavy. Her ball's heavy, pushes me back on my back foot, which is not good, because then I'm hitting the ball short, and then she's hitting winners all the time. So her ball's heavy. It pushes me back physically. My body is pushed back by her ball. And her serve's big, and she hits the targets. And her serve is, her serve her, is so accurate. Her serve, and she is just such a majestic figure that you are just, you're kind of like, first you're like, whoa, this is Serena Williams. <laughs> and then you're like, and then you're kind of like, okay, let's just stay, stay focused, stay in the moment. You can do this. You know, you're trying to talk yourself into it. And then the fact that her ball's coming so hard and then in between the points, she's moving so slow in between points. It's a very, I don't know if anyone's ever noticed that, anyone else who's played her. Um, but yes, she, she walks so slow, it seems. And then she'd toss the serve up and wham, 122 right in the tee. And you're like, whoa, it was just like such a different level of intensity from when she's bouncing the ball, getting ready to serve to then the actual contact of Violence. the serve. Yes, it was just like, my yeah. eyes had to adjust. There's so much to talk about, but I, I wanna, I, I know you watched the final and... Mm -hmm. um, my daughter was excited to watch the final too, so. Yeah, and listen, it's interesting to me to talk to, talk to you about this as a mother, mm -hmm. as a former player. Yes. As someone that's played her, mm -hmm. as someone that shared an agent with her, that knows her agent. Um, I think that all of those things I think, I think that everything is an indicator. I feel like, now, I don't watch a lot of tennis anymore because I'm a mom and, you know, I've got, like, mommy brain and they're my main focus. The reasons why I wanted to watch the match was, you know, I've, I've read books to my daughter about Venus and Serena. They have lots of kids' books. She's grown up knowing that I was a professional tennis player and I played Serena Williams, right? to the moment where I finally take her to the US Open and we sit courtside and we watch Serena Williams and she's yelling, let's go Serena, you know? And I'm like, this is so cute. And then coming back and my daughter and I making a date, we're gonna turn on the finals of the, of the US Open. And my daughter was, she liked the way that Osaka played as well. And so it was kind of an opportunity for me to see how Osaka played. I'd never really watched her, sat down and watched a full match. <laughs> And um, so as a mother, what happened in the finals of the U.S. Open was a bit shocking because, you know, she's, she is a mom now. Well, what were your impressions of what happened? Um, she got handled in the first set, but the tennis was good at the top of the set, but she was getting beaten. The thing is, is the meltdown lasted 12 to 15 minutes. I think it was 3-3 when it happened in the second, right? I thought she got coded. She got coded at 3-1, okay? okay? She got coded at 3-1 for coaching. That ruffled her feathers, getting that warning in front of millions of people. She felt like for her image right now that her and Jill Smuller are creating, she didn't want any, any bad publicity going towards her new motherhood image. I felt like she was losing and she was... The narrative that 
that had been created, that she was going to win as a mom, was falling apart. And I didn't think that she was arguing about coaching. You would never be like, I'm not a cheater. You would just go play. It was 15 love, big deal. Bang a couple aces and keep it moving. I thought she was going to let that go, let that uh, coaching warning go. She, it ruffled her feathers to the point where she stopped playing well again. And I think she was thinking about her image a little bit because she is a new mom. She had to have been thinking about her image a bit. I don't know why, why she would worry about that. We don't think that you're a cheater. Um, but no, but she it was, was such worried a about move. that because that is her, that is her sort of new identity. She should have let it go, but she didn't. She cracked the racket. And then she got another code violation. Well, well no, so she, she, got the, she got the last violation for calling him a liar and a thief, the chair on That was the game. That was the game. But she got a point, she got the point on the racket smash. Racket smash. She the, had a nervous breakdown. And by the way. I thought it was a conscious sabotaging of the event that it was like, all the lines had... You wouldn't consciously sabotage anything. That's your subconscious that's sabotaging. <laughs> Fine. Subconsciously... Yeah. The She didn't believe event, she could win. She, she was, didn't believe she could win. And, and, and somehow, because we weren't... She wasn't going to get the ending to this fairy tale with the baby and the HBO, that she was going to wreck it for everyone. And she wrecked it for Osaka in a way that I found so appalling. From Osaka's standpoint, I think she was shocked, okay? I feel like I would have been smiling a lot more because I just won the U.S. Open. But I felt like, hold on, let's back it up <laughs> for like, a second. like, who cares? Did you hold think, that trophy up, girl. And what about the, and, and it seemed like Osaka's coach, Beijing, Sasha Beijing. He knew some but secret seemed, about Serena, and he told it to Osaka, and she knows now. She's got the golden secret. But, but Osaka, he had her so well coached that she stayed calm through that whole shit show. I have to ask this. I want to know, you know, uh, Serena, she claimed that she'd been a victim of sexism. Do you have anything that you would say about that? Well, I think being a new mom and still trying to be Serena Williams, I, I can imagine is not easy. There's a lot of stress on her. She's probably taking care of a lot of people up there in that box. And I don't know this, but I mean, she's got a new baby. She's trying to make history. Um, bottom line is she cracked her racket into after getting, after getting a code violation. So she knows she's on her second code violation. Because you have been around the sport a long time and you know the rules, it's like you just, you created that mess. It was a big mess. And, and I mean, you know, when you're a mom, you want to play this mom card and I know you want to be responsible. And I know sometimes you don't want to be responsible when you're a mom and you're just like, oh, this is so hard. But it's like, you know, she knew the rules. She, she needed to follow the rules and, and, she, and she just lost her composure. And it's, I, think if, I think if this was the first time that it happened, we would all be like, oh, okay, we'd get it, right? But we kind of know what that temper is capable of because let's not forget Serena Williams against Kim Kleisters in 2009. 
except that in 2009, she was the victim of a foot fault that gave her opponent match point in a final. I almost, part of me thinks that she was well within her rights to explode, where in this case, as we all know, getting coded for a coaching violation does not. Let me tell you, that's like a $5,000 fine, though, in a Grand Slam. Not, that's nothing for her, but it's happened to me before, and I was really annoyed. I was like, you know what? I didn't even hear what he said, for crying out loud. But to, to blow up your whole th- my my feeling was, was she was rattled because she was getting worked. She was just her, rattled. Her opponent was beating her up, and when she got broken back, Something, when she snapped that racket, it felt like, to me, she was just gonna wreck the whole thing. She's got a temper on her. Do you agree? Yes, but that temper has won her many Grand Slams. You have to have that fire. Listen, I never had a problem. I'm talking about this one day and this one match. I have all the respect for her and her family and Mm -hmm. her sister and everything that they've done. I have no issue with any of it. Bottom line, she is... She is um, feisty. She is just. But what about the idea that the that the whole thing, the whole being Serena, came to a crescendo? I feel as though she's too famous to play tennis. I feel as though she is just a little bit too famous now, and it's she wants this respect that I feel like she should have. But unfortunately, you have to play by the rules. Yeah, I think we're. Uh, I think this was a this was a great interview. You were a great guest, um, Ashley Harkle Road. You. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And you Craig. are you are released. I'm dismissed. We say released. You're okay. released. I'm released. Oh, okay. Is that what you say at the end? That's what I Cute. say. I like it. Okay, they're acting bad. Not sure if you caught that at the end, but that was husband extraordinaire, Chucky Adams. We'll have an episode with Chucky coming up, but but next is Tommy Haas. Having played the circuit for 20 years, reaching world number two, he has a lot to say about coaching. He's not only the tournament director at Indian Wells, but he's also coaching the uber-talented Frenchman, Lucas Pouy. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us, and tell your friends. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at info at underreviewtennis.com. want to say thank you to Ashley Harkleroad. Our producer is Scott Tuft. Our music is by Brian Senti. The masterful Matt Degnan did our mix. I want to thank everyone for listening. Until next time, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released. <laughs>